0: I hope uh, everybody is doing well. Um, hey, Andrew, thank you for plugging this Sunday as important as any other sundry, Sunday. Sunday, um, I do feel like it's that first golf tournament after the Masters a little bit, but uh, it's, it's definitely good to see everybody here. So thank you for that. So uh, all joking aside, um, I come from a very competitive family, and the competitive gene is very strong in our bloodlines, and I think I know where it started. I think it started somewhere in the early 1900s, with my grandmother, the late Ethel Farrell, or Nanny, as we called her. And I put a picture uh, up here. There she is in the center, and that's her and her children. Um, And I think if you look at the picture, it kind of gives you an an idea of who she is. She was a gentle, sweet soul. Uh, She was very devoted to her church and to her family. But one thing this picture doesn't show you is this, and this is gonna be surprising. Nanny was a former state champ, lower state champion basketball player. Surprising, right? So when you put a basketball in her hands, her ferocity with winning was right up there with LeBron. <laughs> and I mean that in all seriousness. The gentleness and sweetness was instantly gone. She had no mercy, zero. She purposely fouled. She talked trash. Clean, clean trash, mind you, but still, imagine being 10 years old and being brutally boxed out by your 80-year-old grandmother while being admonished, and I quote, don't bring that mess in here, Pete. She called us all Pete, and I'm not sure why to this day. She made up her own rules, too. She did that, made up her own rules, and she added to rules. She just came up with anything she wanted. Some, she would say things like this, you can travel before you get to half court. Pete. As long as part of me touched the ball, it's not a foul. That was a good one. And there was no such thing as a shot clock. Absolutely not. So you get the idea. And what I found out was that my brother and I would have to go to the rule book, because there is such a thing, the basketball rule book. And we'd have to show her in the book. And we'd have to tell her, No, you can't travel before half court. No, it's still a foul, you know, even if you touch the ball first and now you have part of my ear in your hand. Um, And no, you can't hold on to the ball for five minutes, daring one of us to steal it from you. And so here's the point. There was an established set of rules by the reigning basketball government, and what she was doing had to be checked because we had rules. And all we had to do was go to the rule book. And so this morning, if you're familiar with Acts 15, we're going to read about a similar thing happening, albeit this was Antioch. And obviously, the rule book is the Word of God. So this morning, we're going to be reading out of Acts 15. And by now, you know the background of Acts. We've been in it for a while. The historical na- narrative of the early church written by Luke. And, and again, today we're going to be in 15. But I, I want to briefly recap chapters 13 through 14. Because what we have is Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And all three of Paul's missionary journeys begin out of Antioch. And for this context, I'd like to put this map up on the screen. And so in these two chapters, what you have is Paul and his companions making this giant loop we see on the screen here, beginning in Antioch. And don't be confused uh, during Paul's first recorded sermon uh, here in Antioch of Pisidia. You can see this is actually, Antioch of Pisidia is actually in the province of Galatia. So this is where Paul and Barnabas go, and they preach here, they teach here, they encourage each other here as well, which is important, um, especially in a broken world. It's important as believers that we do just that, that we encourage each other. Um, Greg Osmore mentioned this in in a deacon's meeting a while ago, and it stuck with me. He mentioned an analogy he had heard about embers and how we're stronger together uh, then we are separate. And it's the same thing. This is why they encourage each other on these trips. And any, anyway, they continue this journey. They move through Iconium, where they fa- they face resistance from the Pharisees. And because of the resistance, Scripture tells us it calls them to stay a while. And it says that they spoke boldly for the Lord here, so they didn't run from it. A death threat arises during this journey, so they continue on. They move to Lystra, and uh, after healing in Lystra, they're actually mistaken for gods, for uh, Greek gods, uh, Zeus and Hermes. And so he, also this is where Paul, if you remember, was stoned. But it wasn't in God's plan that he be executed. So he survived the stoning here, only to continue and plant churches in Lystra, in Iconium, and again in Antioch. And after all this, they make it back to the start point, back to Antioch, only to find out that a dispute has arisen there. And so this morning, this is where our story is going to begin with the dispute in Antioch. So that's what we have, a doctrinal dispute by the early church. Shocking, right? I mean, imagine that. Um, We have this dispute But also we have several other things that happen in this chapter. We have a meeting of the council. We have a ton of Old Testament references. We have a letter and we have a resolution. And a resolution that is driven by the grace of Jesus, which we as believers know is greater than all of our collective sins. And that's why the title of this morning's sermon is A Grace Greater. I do want you to know I came up with that myself. Uh, some of the honorable mentions were annoyed in Antioch and sleepless in Syria. But, but, I, but I stuck with the grace greater. Anyway, this morning, let's go ahead and move into the scripture. Say so from Acts 15, what we're going to have here is our first section, believers in conflict. And this is in verses 1 through 5. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So scripture here says a dispute arose. And what is this but a conflict? This is a conflict. So the church is in conflict, and at this early stage, it's affecting both the local church and the collective church. The local church in Antioch and then the collective church overall. And if there's anything we've learned during the last year's walk through the Bible, and even in this series on Acts, is that conflict happens. It happens in the church. It happens in the world. It happens in our lives. It always has. It will continue to happen Because we're a broken people, and we know this. And you've heard that preached time and time again from this platform. But I want you to think hard about this, because when when conflict does arise, here at this church, we can do exactly as the original church did. And we're going to get to that later this morning, but David Guzik says this about this particular conflict. He says, we can just imagine how Satan wanted to take advantage of the situation. First, he wanted the false doctrine of righteousness by works to succeed. But even if it didn't, Satan wanted a costly, bitter, doctrinal war to completely split and sour the church. This may be the greatest threat to the work of the gospel yet seen in the book of Acts. The greatest threat. The greatest threat in this conflict is us. Us falling victim to the enemy's attacks, us falling victims to the attack of Satan. And in particular, this this conflict was about the doctrine of salvation. You see, the Pharisees couldn't let go of their ego here. They couldn't let go of their status. They couldn't believe that salvation was through grace and through grace alone. Their whole lives have been dedicated to the scriptures and their whole lives have been dedicated to the law. And when you do that, and and what we see here is their whole lives also became dedicated to legalism. And when you think about it, when you think about the Pharisees' position, it's actually heartbreaking in a way. They thought the Gentiles couldn't have this kind of grace. It, It was too easy A simple Gentile just couldn't have this type of grace because they had to do something for it, right? There had to be something else. You had to believe and do something. You had to believe and be something. You had to believe and fill in the blank, but simply believing and accepting the gift was just too easy. And here's the problem. And this is the overall problem with the Pharisees. At their core, they didn't believe the gospel. At their core, they did not believe the gospel. They didn't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't believe that this precious gift of life and freedom was that easy because they believed, like many people do today, in a series of steps. They believed, like every other religion outside of Christianity, that tells you you must do this list of things in order to receive a gift. And listen to me, every other religion, all of them, are like this. Do this, say this, act this way in order to achieve this or to receive that. And sometimes in certain situations it can sound a little bit appealing. But the problem is it's wrong. And it's absolutely wrong and it's not true because it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't be saved is what the Pharisees are saying. They're saying you can't be saved unless you follow this particular practice. You can't be saved. And how off base is that? And and before we completely bash them, remember they have spent their whole lives doing this. They've spent their whole lives attempting to live out what nobody could ever live out, which is the law of Moses. And are they wrong? Absolutely they are. They are fatally wrong in this case. 1 Corinthians fifteen three through 5, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Church, this is what he did for us and for our broken state, and that is it. And that is the gospel, and that is what it is. There's nothing else that ever has to be added to it. But we see the church can't accept it at this point. They're struggling with it. The church is in conflict over doctrine and it's in the infancy of its very existence. But note this. Look at what they do. Let's read together what they do. Let's read the truth that we find in the scripture in verses 6 through 21. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that is fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And he he ends with this, Therefore my judgment is is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from these things, polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So we see the first thing the church does here is they gather the apostles and the elders together. That's how the early church responded. They gathered the apostles and the elders together and they did what? They dove into scripture. Take note of what they didn't do. No Facebook post here. No cryptic unspoken prayers of correction for those who don't need it post. We've all seen those. No gossip. Now, did they gossip? Well, probably because they're human. But again, the path we're being shown here is the right one. This is how we resolve church problems. We gather with the scripture, we put the scripture above the individual. We know, we have to know in our hearts that our minds are corrupted, and they have been from birth. And so we can't trust our hearts and our minds because, and we know this because we don't behave the way we want to. We don't behave the way that we should. And that's why we turn to the scripture like the early church did here. The apostles along with the elders of the early church gathered in Jerusalem to address this issue, this conflict over doctrine. And it comes down to this. Do believers have to convert to Judaism in order to be saved? Because that's what the Pharisees are claiming. You have to be part of our group in order to receive the gift of the Spirit and to receive the gift of Jesus Christ. What they're also saying here, likely and hopefully without realizing it, but what they're saying is is that Jesus isn't enough. That he wasn't enough. That his sacrifice wasn't enough. That his death, burial, and resurrection aren't enough. And I love how all of this plays out according to Scripture. And this is an excellent chapter to study. So, first Peter stands up. Peter, the rock. And he says, no. He says, absolutely not. He says, go back to verses 7 through 11. And it says, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. And that by my my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And then James chimes in at this point. And it is interesting what he does here. And so what James does, he paraphrases scripture, which is not a bad thing in this case because he does it under the banner of letting scripture interpret scripture. So he's speaking from the Old Testament, Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. He's speaking from this and by the way, parts of the Septuagint were discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's my weekly plug for the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, but, but he's speaking from part of it, and, and there's a ton of Old Testament quotes. But in particular, he quotes from Amos chapter 9, verses 11, where it says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. He, there's also a piece of Jeremiah 12, 15. After I have plugged them up, I will will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his his land. And the final reference uh, from Isaiah 45, 21, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and Savior, there is none beside me. So this, with some other references, is what we get for verse, from verses 16 through 18 where he responds, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that is fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. So that's a lot. That is a lot of Old Testament reference and that is a lot of study. And it's a lesson for us this morning. James didn't pick one verse and mold it to fit his argument. He didn't pluck some coffee cup worthy phrase, loosely support it with scripture and then say case closed. This was a man who was not only on fire for God, but who had committed the word of God to his heart, one like David who delighted in it. But why? Because of the truth. Because of the truth in it. Because of the truth contained in it. There is power in those united by his word. Not united in feelings, Not united in opinions, but in believers united by his word. There is power in believers, serious about the scriptures, united in the gospel. Power that shakes the gates of hell. And that is not a metaphor in this. There is truth in scripture because in it, our triune God, our loving, all-knowing, all-powerful All present God is revealed. This is how he reveals himself to us. And praise him for that. And praise him for our salvation. Our salvation which is by grace alone. So now we know. They knew and now we know that our salvation is by grace and grace alone. Let's read the letter, the decision from the Jerusalem council, beginning in verse verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So there's a grace here a grace that is greater than all of our sins. I know that's from Big Daddy Weave. I got the song reference. Um, But there is a grace here that is greater than that. And that alone that we know is where our salvation comes from. So the church here was at work. And in this letter, James recaps this for the recipients. He says, hey, the church recognized that some among them had troubled you, uh, had unsettled you, but look at what he does next. He makes it clear that those individuals were just that, that they were individuals. He says, we gave them no such instruction. Acts 15, 19 says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. This is James' position, and now it's the church's position, because it's grounded in the truth of Scripture. And he goes on in the letter and says this: further, we're sending two of our best to deliver this message, both written and in person, just to make sure that our position is clear. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Now, some will ask about verse 29. A few requirements added at the end of the letter. You know, why why the addition? Isn't this contradicting the position of the church? Nope, absolutely not. It does not contradict the position of the church. And this is one of the sections of Scripture that, that if it's not read in context, can be distorted. And so this was to maintain unity in the church, because you got to remember the Jewish customs, based on the Mosaic Law, were still alive and well at the time and so all this is doing is help is helping to grow the unity between the jews and the gentiles and also it was clear it was to clearly distinguish the gentiles the growing christians the growing new christian gentiles from the pagan culture of the day but again this has absolutely no bearing on salvation But a lot of times as a church, we can't seem to get past that, can we? So, churches and denominations across the world can't get past that. And the reason at the core, and the reason at the core, I think, for the hang up is belief. Do we believe the gospel? Do we really believe the gospel? The Pharisees didn't, they believed that it couldn't be that easy, it just couldn't. You had to believe and, follow the Mosaic Law. You had to believe and, adhere to the Jewish customs. The problem is there's no and. There is no and. And Chuck Smith says this about it. He says, and here it was established in the church. Yet unfortunately, there's many churches that still insist on a righteousness through works and have established their standards of holiness and their do's and their don'ts in order that you might have a righteous standing before God. And that's a great quote, and I know we, we've seen it. We've seen these places. We may have been part of these places before. And sometimes you see some of these places on TV. And it, it, it's funny in a way, but you know, they'll show you know, the family up front, and man, they look like they are killing it, don't they? They'll show the family up front, they're all singing, even the toddler, uh, you know, the oldest one's doing a Hebrew verb search, the, the siblings are taking notes, uh, even the, to- the toddlers reading a commentary from Spurgeon, you know, they are, they are crushing it, and it's great, it's absolutely great, it's good for TV, but I always thought it would, it would be great if they showed what it really looks like in a real church. Like one of the kids' eyes is still red from crying all morning. One of them's mad. Um, one of them clearly doesn't match. Um, you know, One's got egg or something on his face, and dad looks like he's asleep. And there's mom, the only one holding it together. And that's what it looks like, church, because that's real, and we know that's real. A real church is full of people who don't have any of this together, who are messy, who are sinful, but here's the thing, we recognize it. We recognize it. We recognize that we need help. A real church recognizes that it needs help, and they recognize where it comes from, and they recognize that their salvation is based on grace. Now we know this. As believers, we know this. And in one of the most remarkable events in the New Testament, we're shown this. We're shown this several times. In John chapter 8, many of you know the adulterous woman, and most of you know the story. A a woman who has been caught in her sin is brought before Jesus. And the scribes and the Pharisees who bring this woman uh, to Jesus have laid a trap. This is not about her, it's a trap for Jesus, uh, because they bring him a decision in which he can't win, uh, if, if he executes her according, or claims she should be executing it according to the law of Moses, he'll be breaking the, Rome, breaking the Roman law, which did not allow Jews to execute their citizens. If he goes against the Roman law, he'll be violating, violating the Mosaic law. So anyway, the, the Pharisees and scribes have laid this intricate trap, and, and we'll read it. It says, um, As they continue to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be, be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So this is the grace This is an example of the grace of Jesus Christ. This is the type of grace that is extended to us, undeserving because of our faith in him. And this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. He tells her to leave the life of sin, knowing that she will sin again that very day and for the rest of her life, but to repent is the point, to repent as believers do. Those who believe in Christ... Know this. Those who believe are convicted of sin, repent of sin, because believers recognize their state before a holy God. But look at this grace. This is the right hand of God the Father in human form, telling this woman, who was, though she was likely set up, who was likely very much guilty, telling her, Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Because what's he going to do? He's going to take it. He is going to take that for her. For that, for the sins in the past, for her sins in the future, just like he's going to do with us. He is going to take that punishment. And that is grace. And that is grace that does not need our help. Because what he asked for is this. He asked for us to bring everything we have to him. To bring it all. He asked us to bring it all the way we are now. Not some sort of polished image. He asked us to come as we are. Because our salvation is dependent upon nothing but him and his grace. So, let's apply what we've talked about this morning. What do we do with this? What do we do now that we know this? Well, it's easy. We come. We come exactly the way that we are right now. We don't present any other image than who we are. So if you're here today and you think you're sitting beside folks that have it all together, who wake up singing a hymn, reciting scripture on the way here, you know, slinging the full armor of God 24-7, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. And now I am speaking of our church right now. I'm, spe- I'm not speaking of the collective church, the whole church. I'm speaking of Friendship Baptist Church in Lugolf, South Carolina. And I want, I want you to hear this, especially if you're new here. Our church is full of broken people, our church is full of sinful people, all of us. And the ones who you think have it together don't. We absolutely do not. You know the ones that somehow get our, their kids to sit still still through the whole service with smiles on their faces, don't have it together. We don't, you don't, and I certainly don't. But God knows this. He absolutely knows this, and He knows us regardless of what kind of image we want to present. He knows. He knows all of this at the very core that we are all lost we're all sinful and we are all desperately in need of him and our our savior we don't need anything else we don't need to do anything else we don't need to say anything else like peter said in verse 10 now therefore why are you putting god to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear He's saying that even us and our ancestors couldn't do this. And for us, we need to recognize that very fact, that we can't. We can't bear that burden. We can't bear that yoke because the burden is is too great. The yoke is too heavy. And if we try, if we try to do that, like we mentioned in the second point, if we try to follow a series of steps and a series of rules aiming for a good grade in order to receive a gift, it's not going to work. It absolutely will not work. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, raised up with him and seated, up, uh, seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. So listen to that this morning. Come as you are, the way you are, and we will meet you where you're at. And as you get to know us, you'll get to know our struggles as well. And that is the power of His mighty church under His mighty authority, sharing each other's burdens, encouraging each other in the process as we all fight the good fight. So, as we close this morning, if you don't know this type of grace, if you don't know this type of mercy, if you've lived your whole church life, no matter how short, no matter how long that's been, convinced that you have to do more, that you have to act better, I would ask you today to please give that up. Give that to him. If you've never placed your faith in the living God, the one who came to give broken humanity a way out, why not now? And why not today the gift of salvation is right here waiting for you to accept it and if you did make that decision today or if you're you have questions about making that decision talk to us we are no different than you are and we would love to share our burdens with you and walk with you on this walk and Andrew will be over in the next steps area after the service so please reach out to us So I'd like to end this morning with one quote from C.S. Lewis, which really discusses this whole idea that we've talked about this morning. He says, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. He says, the idea of reaching a good life without Christ is based on double error. First, we can't do it. And secondly, in setting up a good life as our final goal, we've missed the very point of our existence. Morality is a mountain which we cannot climb by our own efforts. And if we could, we should only perish in the ice and unbreathable air of the summit, lacking those wings with which the rest of the journey has to be accomplished. For it is from there that the real ascent begins. The ropes and axes are done away, And the rest is a matter of flying. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this church. Father, thank you for everyone here, for this broken group of people, Father, who gather in your name. Father, you know us exactly the way we are. You know us exactly how we are right now, broken and sinful, and yet you love us anyway. Thank you for this. Thank you for this type of grace. Thank you for your sufficient grace. Father, this morning we'd like to lift up all here who are struggling. Father, whether they're struggling with health, finances, Father, they're struggling with addiction or, or doubt, or maybe they're struggling with purpose. Father, whatever the suffering is, Father, we ask you to be with them. Heal them, Father. Help them to know who you are and help them to know your love. Father, thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for our way out. Thank you for the beautiful gift of your son and our salvation that we find in him through grace alone. We pray in his mighty name. Amen.